0: Hey, good morning. Thank you for being here this morning and thank you to those of you that are watching online. Can I just ask real quick, before we dive into this message, if you have served in any branch of the Canadian military or are currently serving, would you just stand for a moment so we can thank you for your service? Thank you. And if you have a loved one, a family member, or, or someone in your family who has served, would you just stand also? Thank you. You know, oftentimes we forget about the families of those who serve, but they make a tremendous sacrifice as well. So we thank you to, to those of you who have served and are serving, and those of you who have been a part of serving vicariously as a family member. We are gonna look at 2 Peter verses one through eight in chapter one today. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and get that out and you can open it up to to the uh, first chapter of 2 Peter. We're gonna look at the first eight verses over the next two weeks. So you can um, stand with me now and and we'll read this and you can follow along. Verse one, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. For his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Through these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world on account of lust. Now for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they do not make you useless nor unproductive in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we offer this time to you. We thank you for this word spoken to us through your apostle Peter. We thank you that your word is powerful and transforms and we pray that it will do that today, that it will land in our hearts and in our minds and do a work in us. And we just ask that only the fullness of your truth comes forth to here today, that all that we take from this is what you would have us to know that is of you and from you and for us and for your glory. And we ask all that in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, you can have a seat. Hey, does anybody like to cook? Like, I like to cook. I I do, I seriously, I like to cook. Now you gotta understand what I mean by cook though. Let me clarify. When I say I like to cook, what I mean is this. I like to take a big hunk of meat and put it on a grill or in a smoker or drop it in this pot of boiling oil. That's cooking to me. I'm not into all that indoor kitchen fancy schmancy stuff that some of those people like. You know, all that sauteing and blanching and poaching and simmering and braising stuff. I don't do that. I like it to be cooked outside. I like it to, to be made, soaked in some kind of marinade. I know some people like sauces. I don't do sauces either. I don't do hollandaise or bordelais or demi glaze or, or all those things that those fancy people that cook in their, in their house do. I don't do that. Um, And here's why I don't like sauces, I prefer marinades. Because a good marinade will change the flavor of meat all the way through it. It gets way down in there. A sauce just sits on top of it, right? It doesn't permeate, it just goes on top and it changes the flavor. And I love making all kinds of different marinades. My family might say I'm not that good at it, but I think I am and I experiment, and I play around with different flavors, and so in the process of kind of learning how to make marinades, I I discovered three things that are important to a marinade, you ready? I'm gonna give you a culinary class. Take out your pen, write this down. The first thing you need for a good marinade is an acid. You have to have an acid, like vinegar or wine or citrus juice. The second thing you need is an oil, and so olive oil, is great to use in a marinade. If you're gonna cook at higher temperatures, avocado oil, because it has a much higher burn uh, temperature than olive oil does. And then the last thing you need is like the spice, the flavoring agent. The things that you want the flavor of the meat to take on. And so, I know what some of you are thinking right now, well, great, but what in the world does this have to do with Second Peter? And I appreciate you asking that, and I'm gonna tell you. Because the discipline that we're gonna practice over the next couple weeks as we walk through 2 Peter is a discipline called divine reading of scripture. Some people call it Lectio Divina. The early church fathers called it Lexio Divina. And here's what sauces and marinades have to do with this practice. See, here's the deal. Too often, we, we've been taught to read the Bible in a saucy kind of way. We're basically told read it and then do it. And and we read some scripture, and then we try to emulate it, and we try to spread the sauce of scriptural truth on our existing life. And then what happens is my life has a little different flavor on the surface. It tastes kind of Jesus-y, but only on top. It doesn't go all the way through. And here's the problem with that. I was never told to live a more Jesus-y life. But that's how we tend to read scripture. How can I be more Jesus-y in my life? He didn't come simply to be a mere model of how to live. He actually came to give us an entirely new life. And so, listen to this in Romans 8, verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you, give you life. Not change or clean up your existing life, but give you a new life. A spirit indwelt and empowered life in your mortal body. And so that's why taking a marinated approach to scripture is more important than taking a sauce kind of approach. And that's what divine reading is. It's one of the ways we participate in receiving this new life. It's a marinade practice of reading scripture. I read it and I let my soul soak in it and I let my soul marinate in scriptural truth. Then my soul begins to be flavored through and through by scriptural truth. And all of my life starts to taste different. You see the difference between the sauce approach to Scripture? My life doesn't just taste Jesus-y on top, like I put this scriptural sauce on top of it, but the full flavor of Christ in all that I do and think and feel and say and want and pursue comes alive when I read Scripture in a marinade way, when I practice this divine reading of Scripture. It brings Christ alive in me it actually helps me move towards the visions of galatians 2:20 that we talked about a few weeks ago it's crucifying my old life and it's dying with christ and it's bringing his life alive in me and so i become intentional about staying in that marinade because i taste the difference in my life too the flavor shows up not just for all of you but also for me i begin to taste the difference And so now I have this deep desire to let my soul soak in Scripture like it's a marinade because I want the flavor to be changed all the way through. And so here's the deal. These verses in 2 Peter are the best place to start to practice divine reading because these eight verses are at the heart of what the early church fathers called spiritual formation. Transformation. And so here's what spiritual formation is. It's being transformed in such a way that the very life of Christ himself becomes my life. And I do the things that Jesus did through the power of Jesus in me. You see how that's different from a sauce? It starts to take root deep in my soul rather than me spreading a few good scriptural works on top of my existing life. And so here's what I hope that you'll see today is that most of what we do and how we live and what we want and what we seek is a product of our nature. In other words, everything that I would call my life, well, it's only natural. I do what I would do based on my nature. And so the struggle for life for us who desire to be crucified with Christ and have the life of Christ in us, it's actually rooted in our very nature. Now, nature determines three key things about any living creature. Number one, it determines appetites. Number two, it determines our associations. And number three, our nature determines our behavior. And so your appetites, what do you want and seek and desire? That's determined by your nature. You chase after what your nature tells you to chase. Birds don't desire to go on long walks, and fish don't long to lay on a warm sandy beach, and lions don't crave salads because of their nature. It's the very nature of a creature that drives its appetites. And guess what? Christians who are increasingly taking on the divine nature don't desire the corrupted and sinful things of the fallen world. We still dabble in them. We still get distracted by them. And when we embrace them, it's this change in nature that's happening in us that brings us guilt and shame. Those are good things. They're a product of my nature being transformed in such a way that my appetites are changing and when I embrace the old appetites, I feel guilt and shame. Now what I do with that is I take it to the cross, but that's a message for another day. The next thing that nature determines is our association. What you gravitate towards is a product of your nature. And so here's what happens. As we increasingly become deeper partakers of the divine nature, we actually begin to associate with godliness and righteousness. And we seek people who can lead us and guide us and lift us up to live into that divine nature. And then the last thing that nature determines is our behavior. We do what we do because of our nature. The more we become partakers of the divine nature, the more we do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with God. That's what Micah 6.8 tells us. That's what God invites us into doing. Doing that behavior is actually a product of that divine nature coming to life in us. So most of what we seek and what we pursue and how we act, It's only natural. Now, oftentimes we use that as an excuse, don't we? Well, I did this because it's only natural. I'm just a person. But that's not the invitation of 2 Peter. The invitation of 2 Peter is not to have your fallen human nature cleaned up. It's actually to become a partaker of the divine nature. And so as the divine nature increases in you, everything changes. As you become more and more a partaker of that divine nature of Christ, everything changes in you, then how we live is still only natural, but it's from a different nature. Isn't that good news? You can live naturally so long as you're living from a refined divine nature. That actually makes the spiritual life really easy because I don't have to fight against this fallen nature anymore if I don't possess it. If it's gone and no longer in me, if it's been pushed out and replaced by the divine nature, I'm not walking around in a constant battle with myself. The more that nature takes root in us, the more I have the freedom to act reflexively out of that nature. That's what transformation is. And that's the theme of 2 Peter. Growing in maturity as a Christian in this life and by God's grace, being transformed and empowered to live righteously here and now. And so the outcome of this transformation is gonna be clear when we get to the end of the fourth verse of 2 Peter 1. And I'm gonna give you just a little hint. It's only natural. And the foundation of the book is given to us in these uh, these verses, verse two through four in 2 Peter 1, is the whole foundation of Peter's letter. Now, it's important when you read Scripture to to pay attention to a few things. Number one, you want to know who the author is. Number two, you want to know who the audience is. And then you want to know what the theme or the foundation of that letter is. And so verse one tells us who the author is. Peter tells us straight up front. He's the author, and that he's a bondservant and apostle of Christ. Now, the word bondservant is the Greek word doulos. And what it means is someone who belongs to another without any ownership rights of their own. It's closely related to being a slave, but the difference is this. The word doulos conveys the highest possible dignity, whereas the word for slave conveys an absolute lack of dignity. There is no dignity to be owned by another human being. So, Peter using the word doulos is telling us he's owned by another, but he's not treated as merely property. And guess what? This state of being a doulos, of being a bondservant, is not natural to us. Because in our fallen human nature, what do we want? We want to be in control. We don't want to be controlled. So at the get-go of this letter, Peter's telling us something has happened in his nature. Something's changed in his very nature. The next word we see there is he calls himself an apostle. It's the Greek word apostolos. And apostolos in the Greek was a messenger who was commissioned by another to represent him in some way and to be about his mission. And so his use of the word apostolos speaks to the appetites of his new nature. The appetite of his new nature is I no longer wanna be about my mission, I'm gonna be about Christ's mission. Because my nature has changed, I have a different appetite. And so Peter, when he denied Jesus, what was doing, what was only natural, right? I mean, he was. We can look at him and say how horrible that was. But the reality is we all possess that same nature that says I want to preserve myself. I want to protect myself. I want to make sure I survive. Now all of a sudden in this letter, Peter's saying, no, I'm an apostolos. I'm one one sent on behalf of him. And so if I encounter the opportunity to meet harm again, because my nature has changed, I will accept it, which is exactly what he did. This letter was written shortly before his death. And we don't know if Peter knew his death was imminent. We don't know if he was imprisoned in Rome at this time. But there is a good possibility when he wrote this, he had already been imprisoned. And so with those two things as a background, I want to walk through these verses. And so let's start at the very beginning here. To those who have received a faith. So here's what we know about his audience. All of a sudden we know his audience is to uh, people who believe. We know he's writing to people who, who have accepted the same truth he's accepted. And so, to those who have, who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God. And so God brought that faith to Peter and to us and to his audience through Christ. And then he goes on, he says, grace and peace be multiplied. Now that word for multiplied is an interesting word in the original language. It's the word playthuno and it means to be increased to the maximum capacity. Think about that for a minute. It's not simply I have two and now I have four. It's no, multiplied means your your faith is going to be increased to the maximum capacity. The amount of faith that God is gonna put in you by grace is the absolute most that you can hold. And so grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge, the knowledge, remember we talked about this word a few weeks back, The word here is epigenosis. It's knowledge gained through first hand relationship. Now, Peter knew the audience he was writing to did not have first hand interaction with Jesus while he was alive, yet he still assumed that they're in first hand relationship with Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Now, here's my question. If he assumed that the audience that was reading his letter could have access to first-hand relationship with Jesus, then isn't it safe to assume that he would think that we could as well? And so the invitation of knowledge is not to know more, but to be in intimate, first-hand relationship with Jesus. And then he goes on, and he says this, for his divine power. Now, that begs the question, what is the divine power? Well, it's grace. The divine power is grace. It's God acting on our behalf. Not because we've earned it or because there's some merit, but because that's his nature. His nature is to act on our behalf. So for his, his divine power has granted to us everything. This is a great word when you understand it. The, the Greek word used here is pas. And here's what it means. It means All might make sense, right? Translated as everything. All and everything are kind of the same. But here's what we don't see in our word everything. What we don't see is this word means all in the sense of adding one piece at a time. And so the emphasis is on the total picture that comes one piece at a time. Now think about that for your own spiritual life. If you have this vision of instant transformation, which God can clearly do and he has done, but he hasn't brought it to completion in that moment. So as people who seek to be transformed, we must embrace patience and walk with God and say, you do with me what you will in this moment so that I can receive the next peace you want to bring in. And so it goes on then, he says, uh, everything pertaining to life. And when we use the word life, it's kind of a convoluted term because we only have one word for life. Are you alive in Christ? Yes. Is, is dad still alive? He had a heart attack. You see the difference there? But in the Greek, there's two different words for life. One is the word bios, which simply means something that is a living, breathing, moving creature. But that's not the word Peter used here. The word he used is zoe. And zoe means spiritual life. So Peter's talking to us about coming to the fullness of our spiritual life by God's grace incrementally, piece by piece. And that we have everything we need for that. And so he goes on, pertaining to life and godliness... The word for godliness there is eusebia. That's someone's inner response to God. What that means is godliness is me internally responding to God as if he is God instead of as if he is something I want him to be that's not God. We do that sometimes, don't we? God, this is who I need you to be right now and I feel like sometimes God wants to look at me and goes, yeah, that ain't who I am but this is who I need you to be because this is what I want. But that's not who I am, so I can't be that. And so the word he uses here for godliness, the implication is that it's about my internal response, the inner response to God as the person he is, not as the person I would have him to be. And then he goes on and uses the word excellence. And that word in Greek is the word arete, It means to realize the fullness of your capacity in terms of moral virtue. And and so our daughter, our oldest daughter ran cross country, and and, uh, our kids, not bragging, but we're good at being parents, so I'll tell you anyway. Um, Our kids have won a lot of awards and things over the years. My favorite one was when our oldest daughter won an award called the Arete Award from her cross country coach. And his logic behind that award was the person who has gotten the absolute most out of who they are, physically as a runner, uh, emotionally as a teammate, spiritually as a leader. And that's that's my favorite award that any of my kids have won. Um, and, And that, because it conveys that idea of, God, you have given me what you've given me, but I've done all I could do with it. The absolute maximum I could do with what you gave me, I did. And so then it goes on in verse four and says, through these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that, this is important, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. You see what Peter's saying here? Yeah, I know it's only natural when you're living in your fallen nature, but your fallen nature is resolved because you are now invited into becoming a partaker of the divine nature. And that word partaker is the word koinonos. And it's a participant who mutually belongs and shares fellowship, a full participant. Do you see the invitation from Peter? The invitation from Peter is that you, me, all of us who are believers in Christ have the capacity to enjoy full participation with the nature that Jesus himself had. I bet nobody's told you that, have they? And then we wonder why the church is walking around floundering because what we're told is you have this nature, it's fallen and it's bad. Go clean it up, put some sauce on it. Because at least if you can't be Jesus, you can taste kind of Jesusy when I interact with you. And so we put the Jesus sauce on when we pull in the parking lot. Because if, if I want if I want you to experience me as having a Jesusy flavor, surely to God I want it to happen in church, right? <laughs> Last thing I want is for you guys to see my fallen nature. That's for my house and for the highway and for the restaurant, but not you guys. And what we're invited into is actually being partakers of the divine nature. And here's what this phrase tells us, that diarete, that the fullest capacity of moral virtue is the very virtue of Jesus based on the fact that we can become, are becoming, and will become partakers of his divine nature. Did you know that? Did you know at this moment in your life you are becoming the very nature of Jesus? Did you know that he's not going to stop until you become the fullness of his nature? And Did you know that you can rest and hope in the fact that you will become the fullness of his nature? I think that's pretty good news. And then here's where that nature leads, to us, leads us to. Having escaped. So we've got to understand what he means by the word escaped. It's the word apophago. And it means this, having been freed from something and continuing to move away from it. We've been freed from the corruption that is in the world and we're continually moving away from it. Do you see the incremental nature of that transformation? The incremental process? And how many times do we give up? Because we go, God, this thing has been in my life forever, I'm still tempted by it, I still seek it, I still desire it, and I don't want it. And so I guess this is just what's supposed to be for me. And we live bitter, a little bit resentful, maybe hopeless. We try to white knuckle our spiritual life and just hang on real tight, and we're exhausted. And then we start to feel, this is the worst part, then we start to feel as if we just can't be ourselves. (laughs) You know what the reality is of church? This should be the place where you're free to be more yourself than anywhere else in your life. Because we're all struggling to live into that divine nature on a regular basis in increasing ways, having that peace added to us. And then we've got to deal with this word at the end. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world on account of lust. Now, the word used for lust here is the word epithumia. And it has very little to do specifically with sexual sin. Yet that's where we've taken it, right? We hear the word lust, we instantly think of of pornography and sexual sin. But here's what the reality is. That word has everything to do with wanting the wrong things. Now we're back to appetites, right? The divine nature comes in us. Our appetites change. We begin to want Godly things. So really what that word means is you have strong desires just pointed in the wrong direction. That's what that word that's translated as lust actually means. I have these very strong desires, they're just pointed in the wrong direction. So what if I realign my desires towards becoming a partaker of the divine nature instead of serving my fallen nature? And so just to summarize these four verses, Number one, we become mature in Christ by God's grace. Everybody knows that, you would accept it, but then the question is, do we actually live as if that's true or do we think it's by our works? His grace has given us everything that we need to be partakers of his divine nature. Why aren't I living into the divine nature of Christ? I don't know, but it's gotta be something in me because God's given me everything I need to do that. And so we have to accept that. His grace is ever increasing and multiplying in our transformation. So, yes, I need grace to be saved, but guess what? The process of transformation makes me someone who consumes grace far more than any lost sinner does. We consume more grace in the process of transformation than we ever did at the moment of salvation. My transformation is God's work by grace. Our life is now a spiritual endeavor. It's not simply a physical endeavor. I'm not simply trying to get to the end and have enough money to retire and not be a burden on my kids and not have some illness. I I, I dream for that. I want that like everybody else. The dream of my death is this. I just want to wake up dead one morning. I do. (laughs) I want people at my funeral, I don't want them going, oh, he looks so good. I want them to go, man, he used everything in that body. He wore that thing down. And we have conversations about my mother, and she's getting older. And, and I was having a conversation with my sister about her finances, and you know, the, the question came up of wills and things. I'm like, you know what I want? I want my mom's last check to bounce. I want the bank to be empty. I want her to live it all out now. Because life becomes a spiritual endeavor, we don't get caught up in those physical aspects of life. They don't become the most important thing. And so now, the next thing is we can live out of the divine nature right here and now. I don't have to choose the fallen nature. And guess what? The divine nature lives outside of corruption and wrong desiring. So the more I embrace that divine nature and allow it to come into me, the more I walk away from all those things that bring the chaos and hurt and trouble and brokenness into our lives and into our world. And so here's the punchline. Therefore, to live your faith out when you are a partaker of the divine nature, it's only natural. It's just natural. And so here's what we're gonna do, or here's what we're gonna see next week. Next week, we're gonna see just how we exercise intent to realize this vision that Peter's given us. And so verses five through eight are verses of intention and means. They move us toward the vision that Peter laid out in these first four verses. So verses five through eight become the, the means by which we realize this vision he's given us of becoming partakers of the divine nature and living outside of corruption and lust. But first, we have to marinate in the vision. We have to soak our souls in this vision if we're gonna become intentional in these practices that he lays out in verses five through eight. So in short, Peter's telling us, hey, you're a partaker of the divine nature. You got everything you need to be a partaker of the divine nature. And that nature is gonna become the source of every thought, every desire, every action, and every purpose in your life. You're going to experience total transformation, new life in Christ, a spirit-powered existence. Do you see how that doesn't happen with a sauce, that the invitation in that is to marinate? And so the flavor of the life of Jesus in us is going to permeate down to our very nature, the deepest source of all of our desiring and willing and seeking and longing and acting and speaking and thinking and believing and moving in this world. Everything. So as we adopt that vision and we become intentional in our desire for it and we practice the means that he gives us in these next verses we're going to see next week, we're going to move towards that vision. (laughs) Maybe for some of us, first time ever, we're going to get a picture of what it looks like if we live a life out of the divine nature that we're now partakers of instead of the fallen nature that's ruled every moment to this point. That sounds like that's a much easier path than trying to figure out how to put the right sauce on so I can taste jesus to the world. Doesn't it? It's deeper, it goes further, but it changes the actual flavor of your life. It doesn't just add flavor on top of what's already there. And so now I want to go back real quick to the practice of divine reading or, or what some people call Lectio Divina, but I want to point out something that's essential to this practice before we dive into the steps of it. Remember when I told you that a good marinade has an acid and an oil and spices? Well, here's what I want you to understand The acid is actually the verses that we read that we don't like to hear. The stuff that's true but doesn't feel real convenient in the moment. Because here's what an acid does in a marinade it actually opens up the meat, separates the fibers, it even degrades it a little bit. And then here's what the oil is the oil is the Holy Spirit because here's the purpose of an oil in a marinade. It's something that will cling to the meat and hold on tightly. It's almost like an adhesive for the spices and the acid. So it clings there. The Holy Spirit will cling to your soul as you soak in scripture. And the spice, well the spice, that's the life of Jesus. The acid liquefies and kind of degrades the spices in a marinade. The oil holds it to the meat. And because the acid has opened the meat up, that flavor goes in there. That's what happens to us. The life of Jesus is the spice that's in that marinade of Scripture that we soak in. We begin to take the flavor of that on. And we see His life get played out in our souls and in our hearts and in our minds. And it becomes reflexive because it's only natural. So I wanna give you the four steps of practicing Lexio Divina. We're gonna put those four steps up, but we're also gonna post them on the Facebook page later today with a little bit more description of, of what each step is. First thing you do is you read the scripture. Whatever scripture you wanna read. You pick a section of scripture and you read it. You read it out loud, you read it slowly to yourself, and then you listen attentively to the words and see if any word or phrase starts to strike you. Second thing you do is you read it again slowly. And you meditate on it. You think about what you're reading in the context of your life. Who am I in this moment? What does God want me to know in this moment? What do I hear in these verses? And the next thing you do is you read it again, you read it slowly, and you start to pray. But it's a different kind of prayer. You enter into a dialogue with God. It's a type of prayer where I not only do I go to God and ask him things, but I stop and I listen to what it is he wants me to know. One of the ways you can do this that's really simple, we did it yesterday in our, our quarterly life group leaders gathering. You, you think of Jesus in the gospels when somebody's hurting or, or sick or lame or blind and he goes, what do you want me to do for you? That's like always struck me as Jesus, your Lord, you're looking at a blind guy, why the question? You kinda know what he wants you to do. But here's why I think he asked that question, because he wants us to get to our desires. So I wanna invite you in this third step where you begin to pray. You sit with Jesus and let him ask you, what is it you want me to do for you? And answer that question. But the second question's harder. The second question is the one that causes me struggle. Because the second question is you ask him, what do you need to do in me so that I can receive that. And so that's the second part of that that time of prayer, it's dialogue and conversation. Because oftentimes, the obstacle to me getting what it is I seek from him is not his willingness to give it, but my capacity to receive it. I'm just not the kind of person who can handle that well. Be like giving a 16-year-old a Lamborghini. Here, son, go have fun. Would he love it? Absolutely. Would he kill himself? Probably. And so we have to sit with God and say, what do you need to do in me so that I can receive what I'm asking you for? And then here's the fourth step. The fourth step is we just contemplate. What are you hearing in the scripture? What's God telling you? What's happening inside you? Is there conviction or sadness? Is there lament, joy, anger, frustration, excitement, distraction, whatever it might be that's going on inside you? Allow that to be there. And then begin to think holy thoughts. And here's what holy thoughts are. Thoughts of God in me and me in God. It's just that simple. Contemplate the fact that he is in you and you are in him. Consider exactly what it means to be in God as you seek to understand and know the scripture you've read. And so I'm gonna invite you into this practice this week and next week with 2 Peter 1, verses 1 through 8. Find some time, sit down, take these four steps with those eight verses. Watch what happens. Let your soul marinate in them and let that flavor seep deep, deep down into the inner parts of your soul, the place where only you can enter and only God can enter, nobody else. That's the place we need to go to with this. And and don't focus on what you should do, although you might be invited into doing something. And don't focus on what you need to comprehend, although you may be invited into some deeper understanding. And don't focus on what you need to share with others, although you might be invited into sharing some revelation. And don't forget to add the acid. Most marinades fail because we don't put an acid in them. I know some of you guys sitting in this room who aren't as uh, How do I say this? Well, good at cooking as I am, um, have made a marinade and you put some oil on it and you put some spices on it and you're like, eh, that's okay. That's not a marinade. That's an oily sauce. You gotta have the acid. Without the acid, nothing happens. So don't avoid those places where God's pouring the acid into that scripture and you read something and you go, ooh, that doesn't feel good. I don't wanna know anything about that. And so here's what ultimately divine reading is, what Lexio Divina is. It's a practice that Paul invited us into in Colossians 3.16 when he said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How do we do that, Paul? Well, you do this. You practice divine reading. You practice Lectio Divina. And as we do it, what happens is we become greater partakers of the divine nature, that incremental process. And so it's only natural to live how we live because we live out of our nature. Here's the question for you this week. What nature are you gonna live out of? The divine nature or your fallen nature? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for your truth. We thank you that you want to use it to do a deep, deep work in us. And we come to you right now and we say we're willing. We wanna participate. We want to sit before you and allow you to drop our souls in the marinade that is your divine nature and let them soak and let them take on the flavor of the very life of Christ so that when we walk out of this place, walk into this world, our reflexive actions are becoming more and more the very actions that he himself would engage in if he were in our lives. And so we ask you to do that by the power of your spirit in the presence of community with each other for your glory and the benefit of those who are not part of this body. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen.